Hello and welcome to another episode of Board Game with Education. We have a topical-based episode today. That means we really look at one specific topic, and I'm really excited for this topic because we look at game designers and educators slash facilitators and what they can learn from each other. So I'm thrilled to be joined by Eric Slauson today. He's designed a couple games that we have on our site, Monstrosity and Nerd Words, and I'm joined by the co-host of this episode today, Roger Moore. And before we get into the episode, be sure to check out our website, BoardGameWithEducation.com. You can find Eric's games, both Monstrosity and NerdWords, on our site, as well as others on sale for our holiday promotion starting December 8th. So this will be the last chance to get those games before Christmas. So we have a lot of great stuff in the store, BoardGameWithEducation.com. We're going to have a lot of different sales on different games, as well as any purchase over $35, you get a bonus game for free. And the game is Christmas Lights the Card Game. It's sponsored by 25th Century Games, a really great publisher who is definitely worth checking out, as well as some store credit. That's another thing we're doing this next week. If you spend over $35, you'll receive some store credit to our store based on different levels of your purchase. So again, check out our site, BoardGameWithEducation.com. All right, let's get to the show. Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Stats. All right, so I want to welcome back Roger for our topical discussion, and today we are chatting with Eric, but first, welcome back to the show, Roger. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Dustin. It's always uh, fun to be back here. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited to follow up the conversation between Eric and I with you and talk about some things we chatted about. Uh, Eric is an ed tech specialist, and he recently started this role, I want to say this last school year. Um, don't quote me on that. Listen to the episode and find out the answer to that. He'll share share when he started his position at as an ed tech specialist, and he had been teaching English language arts before that. So he talks about some things that either as a game designer, you can learn from educators or facilitators. And so if you're thinking about designing a game with some sort of learning component to it, be sure to stick around for that. Or if you are a educator, he talks about some things that he learns or he learned as a game designer that carried over into his education practice. So I'm excited. We'll listen in and then uh, stay tuned. Roger, we'll, we'll follow up after the conversation. So today I am joined for a topical episode based on a game design and teaching. So we're looking at a game designer and a teacher and what they can learn from each other, or more broadly, maybe an educator, what we can learn from each other. And I'm here with Eric Clausen. He is a game designer and ed tech specialist. He started doing ed tech last year and has been teaching and was an English teacher previously. He is also the designer of games like Nerd Words, which I am thrilled to be carrying that game in our store. That was our first game that we added to our store um, in Mondrosity and Tattoo Story. So I'm excited to be joined by Eric. Eric, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit more and sharing a little bit more with your with our audience? 
Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm Eric Slauson. I'm a, a card and board game designer. Uh, most of what I make is uh, party games or social games. Um, I do some other things in the background um, with game development, um, writing for board games like rule books and uh, stories for you know RPGs and those sorts of things. As Dustin was saying, um, I for the past couple of years have been an ed, ed tech specialist. Um, I work in a, a high school um, helping the teachers integrate technology into their lessons um, and helping them design lessons that kind of leverage these new tools that are coming out all the time. Um, and then before that, uh, I was a, an English teacher, a middle school English teacher. So I've been, uh, I've been teaching for you know a, a while. I've been game designing for about half of that time. Um, and yeah, there's definitely some some overlap between the two worlds. I'm excited to dive into this this topic. And I know I want to really reach in and ask you about your experience in game design because one of the games that we have in our store again is nerd words and i think it's a really great classroom tool too so i'm excited to hear about your experience as a teacher and how that plays into your practice in game design yeah i um you know a lot of the games that i that i've made and in some capacity were either sparked by, you know, uh, something that I thought would be helpful for my students or a skill that I saw my students struggling with, or, you know, some of the games I even tested with my students. Um, you know, once I kind of had the idea, they got the first, uh, you know, the rough version of it. But yeah, even, you know, a, a game like Tattoo Stories, you know, um, when I was designing it, I was I was teaching sixth graders, and sixth graders don't get tattoos, so you know it's not <laughs> it's not for them. Um, but the part of the inspiration and the the design um, is about kind of celebrating creativity, about um, taking chances, taking risks. Players are thrown into this situation where they only have three minutes to design a tattoo from scratch. Um, you're not allowed to erase. You're you know you're really just trying to draw this mishmash design and then you have to share it with everybody and you know that kind of came out of as a teacher especially an English teacher a lot of times you're asking students to do things that are really uncomfortable you know they're they're writing about their own feelings or memories or they're you know making art really you know when you're you're writing a story or a poem or even an essay and then they either have to share it with me or they have to read it in front of the class if it's a speech so, you know, it's something that even adults have a, a big fear uh, of sharing their their art um, or sharing their, their thoughts. So I wanted to kind of gamify that a little bit, put it in a silly, um, a silly context of, you know, tattooing somebody on the <laughs> on the fly um, and, you know, working with with dry erase markers and getting my my students to 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 play it. Um, it kind of, you know, the students who were, were scared to to write a poem had, were immediately able to draw a silly picture and kind of pitch it to uh, pitch it to me or the class, you know, whereas they they had a hard time, you know, doing a persuasive speech, which is the same thing. So, you know, it's kind of just recontextualizing some of those those skills that that people struggle with. Yeah, that's super awesome. It's the students are able to build those confidence skills in a lower risk setting right through the game and then that can transfer over to real life projects that they have to work on like you said maybe delivering a speech or poem in front of class so i know when i've kind of looked into designing games and i've designed some games either for a classroom experience through targeted learning outcomes or i've done some as a as for fun as a hobby and 
my designs are pretty awful. So I'm really excited to to kind of have you on and chat about this because we've had game designers on the show. We've had teachers on the show and we've kind of shared a little bit about how like those two things overlap, but we really haven't dived into this topic. So in your own words, what would you say is a game designer and what would you say is an educator? Ooh, those are big questions. Uh, so uh, to me, a, a game designer is somebody who creates a system that encourages and scaffolds play. Now, in, encouraging and, and the scaffolding part is really where the nuance comes from. Uh, that's and uh, the the systems. That's where you know your rule book and your points and your rules and, and all that kind of stuff controls the experience for the players. You know, if you're um, allowing players to attack each other, is going to be a, a, be a different type of play than you know a, a cooperative um, experience where everybody is trying to work together to defeat a monster or something like that. So yeah, you're kind of you're you're building this this uh, experience or this environment um, and and tweaking the the minute aspects of it to really um, make a, a a fun experience. A teacher um, is somebody who builds a skill in, in, in someone else, and you know we we have a lot of things in our in our our toolbox as as teachers to do that. As a as a game designer, I have a lot of what we call mechanics that I can play with. You know whether it's drafting or uh, hand management, tableau building. I have all these different types of games that I can work with, and as a teacher, I have you know. Uh, formative assessments. I have uh, uh, one-on-one conferencing. I have small group, you know, each of them has these, these toolboxes, but for both, it's, it's really your, your end goal is to provide a, uh, an experience that, that either players or students get something out of. For me as a designer, I want you to have a, a positive memory, a positive play experience, um, you know, a laugh, or in the case of nerd word science, maybe you learn some new words um, and you feel clever. For a teacher, obviously, it's the content um, that you're trying to get the students to to walk away from your your lesson with. But also, you have that emotional piece in there as well with your your classroom community. So, um, yeah, as kind of different, <laughs> uh, but uh, um, yeah, both involve you know really uh, using your your toolkit to um to great effect right i think those defining those two things is a tall order it's it's really hard and it's it's different for every person so just curious to hear what what you had thought they were and i really loved your use of the word scaffolds and encourages as a game designer because you can use those two words in the definition of a teacher too, right? Sure. We are scaffolding learning and we are encouraging learning. So I think that's, I mean, we already kind of just the first sentence, we showed some overlap between between the two. Oh, yeah. I've definitely got some uh, some teacher vocabulary rattling around. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> right. So for you personally, do you have any examples of maybe a time that like game design has overlapped with your teaching or where or where teaching has overlapped with your game design? Yeah, um, you know, aside from you know what I was uh, I was mentioning about having this this toolkit and 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 figuring things out, there's a lot of there's a lot of social emotional uh, intelligence and 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 uh, thought that you have to put into to to both. Um, in 
uh, a classroom, you know, you've got all kinds of different personalities and abilities and all kinds of stuff. And you really have to differentiate your your lessons or your your delivery or even the way you interact with a student one on one. And as a designer, you know, well, depending on the game, if you're making a very niche product or something for a, a very specific audience, then you really kind of have to hone into to that type of person. Um, but if you're making, you know, what's called a mass market game, uh, a game that you want thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people to buy, then you're really trying to get that common denominator that, that um, you know, something for everybody uh, approach. So thinking about what people enjoy, thinking about the, the emotions people will feel goes into uh, the experience. One of the things that is, is interesting is that as a, as a teacher, my, uh, foray into the, the ed tech side, um, got me more into kind of the flipped classroom model or, um, uh, individual, um, uh, personalized learning or individualized, uh, education where students have a lot more control, um, over what they're doing. They're doing independent learning. They're doing, you know, like genius hour, they're going off and doing their own thing. And that was a big kind of mental shift for me from, you know, standing at the front of the class and giving a whole, you know, lecture and, um, kind of having control over over everything and being a game designer really dials that anxiety up uh, to, to 11 because I'm not there in your living room you know with you when you're playing the game I have to really all, all of my the way I write my rules the way the cards look I have to design it so that it's great even if I'm not there, you know? Um, and so doing that as a designer really helped me let go a little bit as a teacher um, and really get more comfortable front loading my lessons um, so that, you know, I wrote the directions well enough that I could send you off on small group or individual or whatever and be confident that your, you know, educational experience is good, even if I'm not holding your hand, basically. So the one thing that I always... <laughs> Um, that is a little bit easier as a game designer than, than as a teacher is they're both um, iterative. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you, you're always kind of changing and improving and, and growing your design. Um, and as a teacher, you're, you're, you're growing your, your teaching practice and your, your lessons. You know, most of us, the way that you teach the lesson is tweaked, you know, either class by class, like, you know, first block, you're like, well, that didn't work. Let's, you know, I gotta, I gotta change the way that I say that the kids didn't understand it last time. So, um, or they didn't laugh at that example. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to cut it, uh, cut it out of, you know, the next block. Um, and you kind of think about it year to year, you know, okay. I remember last year that rubric was terrible. The kids didn't understand the rubric. So now I need to rewrite the rubric. What is easier about game design is that in play testing, you know, I, it's, it's a lot lower stakes. You know, I, uh, I can play a game, Dustin and I, we can play a two player game and it's just like terrible. <laughs> uh, then I can say like, Oh, okay. All right. So let's tweak this, you know, let's meet again next weekend. Let's play it again. Oh, that's better. Oh, that's worse. And we can just keep playing it over and over again. Um, as a teacher, a lot of the anxiety for me always came from like, you really have like one chance to get it right, you know, for the year, like, a you know, uh, we're going to do the short story unit or whatever. And then if that like bombs, then sometimes it feels like you don't have time to like redo the short story unit. you know, uh, you have to wait until next year to like try again and, and, and tweak things. So iteration and, um, and rules writing and, uh, front loading things is, is probably the biggest, uh, the similarities. Yeah. You 
made some really good points, and I think I want to go back to a couple. Is one the what was interesting for me to hear is how you were able to take that experience as a game designer and front loading and sending off the rule book, you know, to someone to play. Maybe you package up the game and you send it off to them to play, and you kind of step back, right? And as a teacher, we're always receiving that feedback from students to kind of maybe adjust certain things in our classroom. But sometimes as a teacher, maybe we could be overbearing. <laughs> we got to step back and let our students stumble through things and learn themselves. I know, at least in my experience, I think that's something I definitely could work on as far as language teaching. That was something that I think I got a little bit better later on in my teaching career recently, more more recently, to be able to kind of step back and let students kind of fiddle around and figure it out themselves because I think that's part of the learning process too. Another thing you had mentioned is having front-loading and giving students directions and being confident that they'd be able to carry out those instructions. And one thing that teachers are always thinking about, I think as a game designer, we're always thinking about too, is what kind of background and experience the players have and what kind of background and experience our students have right? and what they're bringing to the classroom and what they're bringing to the game. You can't expect someone to play a game that's made to be mass marketed. That's something like, I don't know, um, one that comes to mind all the time is Food Chain Magnet, just because that's <laughs> yeah. a super complex game, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And so you're thinking about those things as a game designer and as a teacher, that, that experience in the background that players and students bring. Yeah, an interesting uh, difference. So this is a, you know, where we're teaching is is funny sometimes. Like you, in some some capacity, you know, making a game is is a little bit a um, little bit easier because, like, ostensibly you bought the game because you wanted to. It looked good, you know, and you you wanted to play it. You read the box, or somebody told you it was good. Like it wasn't nobody forced you to get it. Whereas you know the kids don't really choose to go to school. <laughs> uh, you know you have that kind of uphill battle. Um, right. So you know all I have to do as a designer is not mess it up. You know, like I have to I have to keep that momentum going, um, assuming that you're you know you want to play the game. My goal is to like make the game actually uh, satisfy those expectations. Whereas as a teacher, a lot of times we have that, you know, you know, it's, it's seven o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning. Nobody wants to be there. Like, you know, you really have to like go, go uphill to, um, to get them engaged and to, to make them, um, to want to, to be in class. But the way that you do that through, um, engagement, through, um, kind of, uh, these, uh, emotional moments um, through, you know, just the, the the different things that you do in your your class uh, are the same kind of tools that I use as a as a designer. Um, you know, a lot of my games, like I said, are social games and party games. And um, the one of the things that I find interesting about those is the the social interaction. That the fun, a lot of the fun comes from the jokes that you're making with each other, and you know the the interplay between the players. And as a teacher, that's something a lot of us do is like turn and talk to your neighbor or you know, it's like a very easy thing to inject some energy, you know, as if you if you ever want the volume level to increase like 20 times, just say turn and talk to your neighbor. And then the, the classroom like explodes with the kids talking um, either on topic or off topic. But yeah, it's, a, it's, a, right, right. it's a great way to um, 
to inject some of that that energy and um, and personality and, and warmth into your into your classroom. So yeah, I keep some of that stuff um, in mind as as I'm designing because. Both of them, you're 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 selling a product. You know, your your product as a teacher is the the content, um, and you're you're really trying to get the kids to understand why they need to know it, and you know, trying to kind of make it interesting and make it uh, easy easy to digest. And as a designer, you know, my product is my my game, um, and I'm trying to make it easy to understand. I'm trying to make you understand why you want to play again. You know, it's it's um salesmanship <laughs> right, right. We're, we're all salespeople. yeah it's pretty amazing everything so what would you say that someone as a teacher that has no experience game designing maybe or maybe they know a little bit about games what would you think they can learn from a game designer where would you suggest them start oh man um talked about uh, iteration a big part of iteration is is being okay failing and being okay taking feedback I would say that's a really 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 big thing that I unfortunately didn't start doing until you know my seventh or eighth year into teaching was really uh, being intentional about giving my oppor- my students opportunities to give me feedback as a as a game designer I used the term play test earlier and that's basically you know you get a bunch of strangers or friends together and you you play like the you know uh, printer version or you know it's written on post-it notes and index cards and you know all that kind of stuff it's like the the homemade version of your game and then they they try to break it they try to find where the rules don't make sense and uh, as a designer you get used to very quickly kind of stepping back writing down the things that are obviously broken writing down the moments that aren't fun allowing people to be honest and and not kind of taking it personally because in the end the the negative things they're saying are good because they are um, ways for you to make the game better. And as a teacher, like I said, kind of my seventh year in, eighth year in, I started giving um, surveys at the ends of uh, units or at the ends of you know tests or, or whatever uh, to my students. They were kind of anonymous surveys, and I would ask things like, you know, what was really annoying about this this test, or you know, do you feel like you had enough time to study during this unit, or what would have been more helpful, you know, during this unit. Um, uh, and since, you know, it was, uh, anonymous, I had a lot of really good feedback where, you know, the kids were like, there were, there doesn't need to be 30 questions, you know, either we know it or we don't give us 15 questions. We have more time to do other stuff during class and, or, um, you know, it really makes me nervous when you're walking around the classroom, you know, up and down the aisles, you know, <laughs> just, just little things like that. And so either it's, things that you can tweak like yeah there's why not have 20 questions instead of 30 questions or it's things that I know that I need to address with the whole class you know because if the whole if three or four or five kids are like I didn't understand this question on the on the test then maybe that's a bad question or um, you know if they're all really uncomfortable with the way that I'm walking around the, the classroom is there another way that I can I can you know structure that that management or is there a way that I can explain to them why I do that you know so that they they know I'm not like I don't know a, a prison guard. I'm. You know, it's just it's more so that I can like right, right, right. Uh, you know make sure that everybody's having a fair chance to, to to take the test and nobody's taking advantage of each other and, and those sorts of things. So um, really looking for opportunities um, to to gather that feedback from students and and thinking about ways that you can tweak your practice with that. Um, like I said, we do it 
I think informally, a lot of teachers, if you have multiple periods or multiple blocks of the same class, you try to explain something in, in first block and then um, kind of in the back of your mind, you're you're making mental notes of like, oh, they really seem to like that example. Oh, they really, you know, they really didn't understand question number two when we did the practice or whatever. Um, and then the next group of kids come in and you make sure to use that same example that worked. You make sure to explain question two in a different way to see if they understand it better. And, you know, you're just, you're, you're building that over the course of the day, but um, I would encourage teachers to um, take that uh, iterative mindset and that feedback mindset and uh, apply it to your your classroom in general. You never know unless you ask. And um, it also helps them know that you're listening to them and that they that their experience matters to you um, and that they're not being taught kind of at um, that you're kind of um, mindful of what their their needs are and and on some level what their wants are. Right. And I think you make an important point as one, I mean, maybe the most important point, at least in my opinion, is feedback from students, right? Um, I think that's the key to our instruction and making it better. Um, that's one thing that I had done giving feedback to my students. And we I always do a pre-semester, mid-semester, and post-semester survey. And it really helped me create a better semester for future students I wonder, I want to challenge you with this as far as how you decide what feedback to take and what feedback to not take. Um, <laughs> that's a really good, really good question. Yeah. So that's a big thing as a, as a designer also um, that you, that you learn to write down everything and then you kind of have to parse what is good feedback and what is actually something you should try um, or what is like, you know, somebody Everything, all the feedback comes from somewhere. You know, nobody is just, for the most part, saying random stuff. It comes from either a misunderstanding or it comes from some personal bias they have or something like that. And it's it's all important. It's just how important is it? Um, so, uh, for example, if I'm, you know, if I'm designing a, a party game, you know, something like Nerd Word Science um, and players are like, oh, I want the ability to, you know, a player in a, a, a play test is like, I don't, I don't really like that. You know, if this is, this is all about science words, I think it should be about all kinds of different words and, and whatever, then I can like write that down as feedback, but that's not the game that I'm trying to make. So it's not incredibly <laughs> useful to me. You know, it's specifically called nerd word science. Um, but what I can gather from that is like, oh, maybe there's a potential to have different versions of this. Maybe I should look into doing nerd words history or nerd words math or whatever, um, because that person, what they're saying is they want variety. And uh, I can kind of dig into, okay, why do you what was the anxiety that, that made you say that? Was it because that the words were too hard and you didn't feel like you knew the words? Um, and that kind of feedback, um, if you play nerd word science, is kind of some of the reason that there's three words on every card. Um, and now all of them are strictly science-based. Some of them like... Um, you know, whatever friction is a science word, but everybody knows what friction is. You know, it's not something that's really esoteric, um, came from that feedback. So 
I was able on one side to be like, well, there are going to be science words, you know, but at the same time say like, okay, but they don't all have to be super, super nerdy science words. Um, as a teacher, obviously, uh, depending on your, your age group, either kids, if you're teaching adolescents or if you have adolescent kids, they think they know everything. Um, uh, but you, you know, you're trying to still figure out why they're saying what they're saying. You know, um, if it's, if they're saying something like, I hate, uh, homework, you know, on, on one level, you know why, because, you know, homework is not fun, you know? (laughs) Um, but there might also be some other reason there might be, um, a lot of students, you know, take care of their siblings at home. They don't have time for homework and it's just an additional stress on them. It might be that the kid automatically understands things. And so homework really is just busy work. It's just them doing 10 problems that they already know how to do. There's, there, you know, there's no challenge. There's no, it's like folding laundry or something. You know, it's right, just right. like a thing that they're automatically doing, you know? So it's, it's, it's really thinking about, okay, why are are they all saying this? And like I said earlier, it might be something that you you can change, um, uh, like the 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 way you structure your homework, or whether you're assigning homework at all, or you know shifting to in class formative assessments, uh, or it could be something that is a a problem of um, of delivery or or understanding, you know. And if you take the time to talk to your your students and say, here's why I give homework the way I do, or here's, you know, why I, you know, here's why we always have a pretest and a, and a post-test or, or whatever. Um, then uh, I found that the students, I didn't get as many complaints after that. They were like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, um, sometimes students just don't understand. It feels like you're just doing things to be mean or, you know, because I said so reasons. Um and, you know, honestly, a lot of times you you are, you know, <laughs> if you really think about it, you just, you know, sometime years and years and years ago, you're like, I'm going to set the desk in rows. And you just always did because, you know, and um, if a student's like, I wish I could sit next to my friend or I wish we could sit in groups like Miss So-and-so's class or whatever, um, you know, at first you have that like defensive thing like you know no I'm not going to sit them in groups because they're going to talk all the time and you know I'm going to have to figure out who sits with who and you know you you start looking for problems Um, but what you should be trying to do is maybe go talk to Mrs. So-and-so about the way that she structures her group so why do the kids like that um, more than you know the 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 desks in rows do do your desks really need to be in rows or is that just to make it like easier for you to walk up and down when you're, you know, <laughs> being the prison guard while they're taking tests. Um, so yeah, you know what? Um, I think the highest level of any sort of design, whether it's lesson design or, or game design or, you know, product design, car design, building design is uh, the why of the thing, you know, like, we all know the, 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 what we're trying to do. I'm trying to make a party game. I'm trying to teach verbs or whatever. Um, it's really getting to the, the why that will help you improve your, your, your lesson design and your, and, and your, 
uh, focus um, uh, and the the make decisions of how you tweak uh, things that are that are going on in in your classroom. Why are the kids? sitting in rows. If you don't have a really good reason, then maybe think about that <laughs> a yeah. little bit more. You know, why do, um, in, in tattoo stories, for example, to, to go back to that, um, the, the players have five things that they're trying to combine, um, into one tattoo. So it's like a, a pie fire, uh, a fairy, a dragon and a tree, you know, and they have to mash all that together into one picture. There is a why to that. There's a, there's a reason it's five cards and not seven cards or three cards. There's a reason you have three minutes instead of two minutes or four minutes. And all of that came from surveying players, play testing, um, and, and, and honing that, um, those whys um, uh, and the five cards, three minutes was the, the best experience. Um, the same thing you can see in, in uh, monstrosity, you have two minutes in that game instead of three minutes and that, you know, there's, there's, there's design reasons for that, but you're really thinking about uh, why are you making the choices you're making? And, and if you don't have a really good reason, then that maybe is something that you um, can investigate. Right. And so, Going to the other side then, what can a game designer learn from a teacher or educator? And then I also, maybe we can get into this too, because some people are in the process of maybe designing a specific educational game. For example, I mean, Nerd Words is maybe not an educational game, but it's definitely a game meant to include some type of learning, right? So what can game designers learn from educators? Oh boy. Um, what can game designers learn from educators to me? Uh, or one, one of the things that I, I learned and I kind of touched on this, this earlier, your game is going to people and you, you really need to learn some basic, um, psychology and some, uh, think about the way that, you know, things, make would would make somebody feel um in in your game and whether that's worth um the thing that you're trying to do so for example you know let's say uh you know a teaching example you know there's like the classic game you know jeopardy we play like classroom jeopardy all the time or whatever and usually it's like team versus team um i started kind of rethinking that because if you have the students who don't understand the material and they have to like get up in front of the whole class and represent their team and they get it wrong, then like not only have they kind of been embarrassed a little bit by not knowing the material, but they've also let their team down. Their team is mad at them. You know, like it's, there's a lot of negative emotions for a kind of what is supposed to be a silly, you know, just kind of a review thing. Um, and that's why I, you know, I, I started shifting a little bit to these digital um, uh, formative assessments that are kind of um, anonymous, like uh, qu uh, quizzes or Kahoot or something like that, because that way um, for quizzes in the on the, the teacher dashboard, I can see what everybody is missing and what everybody is getting, but they can't see each other's. And on Kahoot, they can see their own score and they can say like, oh, I really don't understand this. I need to study, but it's not in front of the whole class. You know, uh, thinking about, you know, how things make people feel is something that I, I really started to do as a, as a, as a teacher. 
uh, talking about giving speeches, um, you know, is there a reason that everybody has to get up and give a speech or can I allow students to make a video and record their voice instead? You know, um, maybe it's just that that in-person speech that is giving them anxiety, but they have the uh, they have the words and they have the thoughts. Um, so why not just let them do a video essay that explains their their topic or, or make a commercial for their persuasive you know, speech or whatever. And as a, as a designer, you get to be a better designer by thinking about the way that, you know, games make your players feel. And it doesn't have to all be, you know, cuddly, you know, everybody has a good time. If you're making, you know, chess or whatever, somebody's going to leave the game feeling dumber than the other person. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it is. You know, it's a strategy game and, you know, one person is going to lose. Your job in that type of game is to, help scaffold um, them feeling clever during the game, you know, um, in, in chess, usually unless you, uh, you know, just get completely obliterated, there's like moments where you feel clever, like, Oh, I, you know, I got your queen. Oh, I, you know, uh, I just took two pawns from, you know, like it, it, every little individual thing that you do has a feeling associated with it in, in food chain magnet, you know, it's a very complex game, but each individual little system is giving you these little moments of feeling clever, of feeling like you're building this, this food chain. Um, and while, you know, yes, there's a winner and a, and a loser at the end, um, and one person is going to feel better than everybody else, um, you're looking to make sure that the losing players don't feel like they're losers the whole game, <laughs> you know, uh, is, is really important. And um uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's thinking about people as, as people and, and as, um, and that there are kind of emotional consequences to the words that you use, to the art that you use, to the, the, you know, abilities that you give players. Um, yeah, really just think about the, the, uh, um, psychological and the emotional impact of the decisions, uh, of the ways that you're asking players to interact with each other. Yeah, I think, I mean, it comes all back to what we, I think is a theme of this episode, the student experience and the player experience and what you're adding to that or taking from that, I guess, detracting from that experience. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right, Eric, so don't go anywhere. We're going to play a game coming up. I'm back with Roger. Roger, I think I learned a lot from Eric, and like I mentioned in the conversation I had with him, I've done some game design for learning, and I have a lot of experience doing that, but I don't have a lot of experience designing for fun, for ed entertainment, I guess. Uh, what do you? What stood out to you in the conversation between Eric and I? For me, it was uh, it had a lot to do with uh, where he said he kind of purposely um, kind of let students struggle a little bit which I think is a difficult thing to do as a teacher, but it's, it's a good, really a good way for students to learn. And that, you know, maybe it promotes them, at least at some point, it's going to take some time about maybe taking a little more of a risk, you know, that it's okay. Because I think a lot of times students will look at teachers, well, you're, you're the teacher, you know all the answers. And that's not necessarily always the truth. Um, that, that is totally fine to let them, you know, struggle because then that's the discovery part. Then they, they maybe start to think on their own and those kinds of things. So I, I just know in my, my teaching practices, I did some real similar things 
we, you know, with certain activities where I would leave things out on purpose and watch, you know, then it, I think sometimes that actually for students, it piques their interest for some of them, it might get them going and, you know, maybe make them more curious. Now, you know, on the flip side, you can have some kids that shut down from it too. So I, I think you have to be, um, you certainly got to be aware of that, you know, but that, that, that comes over time. I think, you know, learning, learning your students, maybe not something you might want to do beginning of the year, but maybe it is because then you kind of, kind of get a little bit of a gauge of where you, where your kids, you know, are willing to go or whatever. So, I mean, that's one thing that really stood out to me in the conversation. Right. I think that was one thing we talked about throughout the episode is that theme of knowing your students for a teacher or facilitator and knowing your audience for a game designer. And I think one thing that's important that Eric mentioned too is front loading. And for a game designer, that's absolutely 100% critical. If you are not front loading in a sense of creating that rule book for understanding how to play the game, or if you're someone just, you know, playing a game for the first time, you want to really look at the whole idea and be able to go through the process of teaching the game without having to, I guess, struggle through it. I don't know. I guess I'm trying to process this. The front loading of a game as a game designer is in the rule book where a front loading as a teacher is through whether it's scaffolding or giving explicit directions. That's super important. And through a student, you're able to learn you're able to go through a self-learning process if that front-loading component is there. And as a player, you're able to play the game if a very strong front-loading component, that being the rule book, is there. Right, right. Yeah, I agree with that. That, that makes sense. Yeah, like I said, there's a lot of caveats with, with all that stuff, strategies and stuff you can use. You know, purpose of leaving stuff out or maybe you, you really want to... Maybe you could even kind of do a hybrid of that where you, you leave little bits out, but other parts of it, you guide them. And then maybe you slowly back off the next time or, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to approach it. And I'm curious too, because I know you mentioned that you had done some flipped classroom instruction or you did some video instruction for your students. And that's something that Eric had said now that he's become an ed tech specialist is he really list he's really leaned into that flipped classroom environment or that student-centered learning approach. And I as well have used a flipped classroom approach. So I wonder how and why or if that relates to game design. I don't know. I'm trying to process that idea. Do you have any ideas regarding flipped classroom or student-centered learning approach in game design? I mean... I don't think it really applies, but I think it's still like you were talking about rules, but then you have, instead of people, I, I still don't know this applies, but instead of, uh, you know, having to read the rule book that somebody else has done the work for that, like they've created some kind of playthrough or something, which, you know, there's a lot more of those things I think that are coming out. A lot more people are diving into that and you've got some people that are kind of mainstays, you know, doing that, uh, you know, in the industry right now. It's kind of some of the stuff I look for, you know, if I'm looking for those sorts of things are ones that are much more condensed, you know, and that, that, I think in that sense, that might work better for teaching because of, you know, time constraints in class, classrooms and stuff like that, that you, you don't want to have a really lengthy explanation of something that it, it needs to be short, sweet, 
in, in kind of to the point, you know, and you may even have to make it a little entertaining too, I think to, you know, kind of engage students or whatever. That's about all I can really think of. Uh, I'd have to the term ponder that a little more. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you made a good point where it should be entertaining is when I did the flipped classroom approach, what's really important is concise information through video format, because it's really easy to lose engagement when you're watching a video. So you want to make sure it's short content in bursts, I guess, and also create some sort of way to make the video engaging or interactive. And one thing I would do is like plant, um, like what are the, what do they call it in, in movies, like the secret things. Oh my gosh. What are those called? Um, Oh, like Easter eggs or something? Easter eggs, yes. yes. Right. <laughs> I would plant like little secret Easter eggs in, in videos. Like, for example, I used a secret word coffee because I talked about how much I love coffee in my video. Like just mid-video, I was teaching content and then I did like a little cut, cut scene and I was like, hey, the secret word for this video is coffee because I really love coffee. And if you let me know what the secret word is, I'll give you some bonus points. And then I went back to the content. So it really helped me. <laughs> One, it really helped me to understand who's watching my videos. And two, it hopefully helped people or my students learn that, okay, I need to pay attention to these videos in the future because maybe there'll be another Easter egg in one of these videos. And when it comes to like rule book teaching or rule books, like how do you make that engaging? I don't know. I don't know if you can do that with the rule book, but you could create a different medium of teaching a game through like a QR code on a on a game and then Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Th I think there's a lot of things you could try, you know, or making certain, you know, I think sometimes having kids teach each other might be a good way to do it. So like you said, of a QR code or something, maybe, you know, this group of students has access to this part of the game and another one has access to this part and so on. And then they have to start coming back together. You know, I mean, that's all a time thing, but that, that might work you know, is something because then they're, then they're not trying to digest all of it at once. Like, you know, this group of students is just learning this part of it, but then you're going to teach yours and then the other one's going to teach what they know. And then you just kind of build on that and scaffold it until, until all of a sudden, okay, now we have all the rules down. Now we can play, you know, and then some of those kids would be experts on that part of the game, you know, or whatever, you know, when they're, when they're playing. And then I guess if you put them together that, it would make sense where you would have one student, you know, that came from each group that would come together playing a game because each one of them is, you know, helped understand that part of the rules. So now that you've kind of got a complete, like every student's got a piece of it and they can all help each other or something. And I think one thing that Eric touched on that is, is my absolute favorite thing I discovered when I started looking at how to design games and learning a little bit about design theory I suppose I'm not <laughs> I don't have a background in design but this is like the first thing you learn when you think about designing anything and that's the iterative process where you create something it fails and you create it again and how teachers are designers we are designing a learning experience for our students and we're learning what works and what doesn't and we iterate on that process I think that was super helpful on the thing he touched on. And then he also talked about feedback. And one thing that he mentioned, and I hear all the time when you receive feedback is write everything down. Even if it's absolutely terrible garbage feedback, that's your first thought when you hear this feedback, it's fine, write it down. 
you might revisit that and see it from a different perspective and realize something that Eric said, where that feedback comes from and if you need to adjust something based on that. All right, so Roger, we're going to move into our game. And I did not share the game with you before, I don't think. And I cut out, <laughs> we stopped the conversation. So the game is something we've done before. It's, is that for real a board game? So you've played this before, and I'm going to go into the explanation with Eric now. And after the explanation, Eric is going to read three different board games. One of them is my board game. One of them is Eric's board game. Those are both not real board games. And another one is a real board game. So in order for you to win, you need to guess the correct, you need to guess the real board game. In order for Eric or I to win, if you guess my board game, I win. If you guess Eric's board game, he wins. And feel free to play along at home. See if you can guess the real board game. All right, so we're going to play, is that for real a board game? And this is going to be a little bit different if you've listened to the previous episode or watched our live stream where we played this before. So Eric and I have both thought of two board games that are not real board games. And then I found a third one that is a real board game. So if you're listening, you can try to guess which one you think is the real board game out of the three. And Roger will also be playing. So in order for Roger to win, he has to guess the correct one. In order for me to win, he has to guess mine. And in order for Eric to win, Roger has to guess Eric's. So I have a name spinner, and based on who it lands on, so this way you and Roger, you listening and Roger, will not know which one is whose or whose who's board game is whose or which one's the real one. So I'm going to click spin here, and we'll see who gets to read the first one. And the first one... Eric, you get to read that first one. Okay. In Lava Lake, players are leapfrogging across a lake of lava on lily pads made of rock. Players roll dice to determine what types of rocks they can jump on and how sure their footing is when they land. But watch out. Your shoes are melting as you cross, and the rocks are getting smaller and smaller. All right. So that's Lava Lake. And we'll go to the number two. And that's going to be... Eric, you get to read number two also. Oh, goody goody. In Coconuts, players launch coconuts toward a field of cups in the middle of the playing area. Score points by landing in the cups and become the top monkey. By playing special Monkey King magic cards, you can force opponents to shoot blind, take long shots, or otherwise ruin their efforts to cup a coconut. All right, that is Coconuts. And the third one will be read by... Eric, you gonna read that hey, third one. Hey, hey, It just likes my voice. Yeah. <laughs> Flapjack Pancakes is a dexterity game where your goal is to stack as many pancakes as possible. The pancake pieces are lopsided, so you have to be careful how you place them on your plate. Use challenge cards to force your opponents to take more lopsided pancakes. All right, and that's Flapjack Pancakes. So if you're listening, try to think of which one's the real board game, and then we'll ask Roger. All right, so we have Lava Lake, 
coconuts and flapjack pancakes. What is the real board game? Yeah, uh, I think it's coconuts. It is coconuts. <laughs> yeah. I'm just not familiar with that one. That's why. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> so. I tried to find an obscure one. It's it's kind of obscure from Korea. I think it's called Coco Nuts in Korean. The It's a Konglish board game name. Uh, but yeah. Well, do you know which one was Eric's? Can you guess? Uh, Let's see, Lava Lake or Flapjack Pancakes? I don't know. I'm going to go Lava Lake. Ooh, he scored a a bonus point because that one was Eric's and then mine was Flapjack Pancakes. Pancakes? Okay. (laughs) That was just totally a guess there. If any of those games come out, you have to credit Board Gaming with Education, either Eric or uh, Dustin for those. (laughs) Right, right. There you go. There you go. So, Eric, thank you again so much for joining us today and sharing a little bit about your experience as both an educator and a game designer. I know I learned a lot from the show. I'm sure others did, too. If anyone wanted to reach out to you, where might they do that? And I know you have a game that's hitting the shelf soon. Do you want to share a little bit about that, too? Yeah. Uh, so if you uh, want to reach me or follow my my game design uh, things, I am at Slauson Designs. That's S-L-A-U-S-O-N Designs um, on Twitter and also on Instagram. Um, uh, and as far as my games, uh, I have Nerd Ward Science, which is available um, kind of everywhere um, and in um, uh, Dustin's store. Um, and I also have uh, a game called Tattoo Stories, which I mentioned on the podcast. That's available um, on Amazon, Target, um, the Bicycle Cards website. Um, and then my newest game, is called Monstrosity, um, and that just released, I believe, as the time of this this podcast. Um, and that uh, you can find uh, through Deep Water Games. Um, it'll also be available on Amazon um, and hopefully at your your local game store as well. Um, I mentioned it a little bit, but I, I don't think I explained what Monstrosity is. The, core idea is that you are uh, kind of police sketch artists but instead of uh, drawing suspects you are drawing aliens that people have seen they've kind of had a close encounter of the third kind Um, and uh, one player sees an alien card they try to memorize it for 20 seconds they put it face down and then they have two minutes to describe it to all the other players who are trying to draw as fast as they can based on the description they're yelling out questions to, to to the witness to try to get more information um, and at the end of the two minutes you turn around your pictures um, you kind of have some wanted posters that you've made and the witness uh, looks to see which one is the closest to what they think uh, they remember the the alien looked like um, so really fun time uh, a little a neat little party game a communication memory um, uh, game but I'm really excited for that one um, uh, to come out so yeah I'm super excited to to hopefully give that a try here soon too, or actually by the time this podcast comes out, hopefully I've had already tried it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, Roger, thank you again for coming on the show. I'm excited to have you on again here in a few episodes. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks for having me again, Dustin. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening in this week. If you liked what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games, or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening, and until next time.